Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. Along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, we have the ethos that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity, because movement is part of what makes your life complete. Moving to Live interviews professionals in the movement field who have a variety of experiences, education, and professional titles. At the end of the day, we all want to move more, and we want our patients, athletes, or clients to move more or move better more efficiently, or move with less pain. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well-known in and outside of the movement and exercise professions. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. Each Moving to Live interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single listen, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. Before we get to the interview, a quick request. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share the podcast with your friends or anyone who understands that movement is a lifestyle. We appreciate it, and our guests appreciate it too. Welcome back to another edition of Moving to Live, as you heard in the intro, along with our sister podcast, FitLab Pittsburgh. Our ethos is movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. We really want to make it the idea that movement should be more normal, not abnormal. And we pick guests that have interesting stories. In some cases, I pick them out by surfing the internet. In other cases, they are people that I've known either for a short time or a long time. And I don't know if today's guest remembers when we first met, but it was sometime in the early 2000s at the NSCA uh, Personal Trainers Conference in, I believe, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I know he has done some work with cycling. If I remember correctly, he's lived all over the Southeast, someplace in the Midwest, Kansas, Nebraska, or someplace like that. Spent some time in California, and now he is working at the University of Illinois, Chicago. We're talking today with Josh Miller, who is a clinical associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Nutrition, but I think he's a little bit more than that. Josh, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. My pleasure, Ben. Thanks so much. And uh, actually, I've lived in eight states since we probably first met. And, and as I said, it was back in the 2000s. And I think in that time, you were in the Atlanta, Georgia or Athens, Georgia area doing something. It was probably a blast from the past for some listeners with Jelly Belly Cycling. Uh, actually, it was Jittery Jones. I apologize to the coffee people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was actually uh, helping out with uh, a friend of mine who unfortunately is no longer with us, uh, Michael Ross, Dr. Michael Ross, who was one of the team physicians. And we did some uh, stress testing and exercise testing of the uh, team prior to uh, the season. So it was really a lot of fun to work with the guys. And my question I always like to start out with moving to live is you're in the elevator. The elevator gets trapped and somebody, you get to talking and somebody says, what do you do? What's your, in a positive way, 30 second elevator spiel, or maybe it's a little longer, a little shorter. Who are you? Uh, who am I? Simple, to, not that simple to answer anymore, uh, I guess. Uh, but pretty much I am a exercise physiologist who has worked in the field in pretty much every aspect except really with kids. I've worked with uh, active duty soldiers, inactive soldiers due to uh, injuries, uh, due to spinal cord injury. I've worked in uh, professional athletics with uh, cycling teams. Uh, I've taught. I have actually worked in cardiac rehab, pulmonary rehab. 
I uh, worked in hospital-based wellness, where I was actually a hospital coach to get people well. Uh, let's see, I worked in corporate wellness for a brief period of time with Motorola back in my graduate uh, studies. And my first job was actually working with senior citizens as a fitness instructor at Century Village in good old Pembroke Pines, Florida. I'm on sure, top of other things I've done. <laughs> I, I'm sure at some point in time, you've had a student that says, well, you know, Dr. Miller, you just don't know what it's like in the real world. And in actuality, you do. So I'm curious, starting out, I mean, in, in, other, in order to stay in exercise physiology or exercise science or the movement field for a fair amount of time, over 20 years, you have to have at least some enjoyment of movement. So I always like to find out were you an active kid? And if you were, was it because mom and dad said, get the heck out of the house? Or was it because mom and dad were active? Or was movement something you found later, maybe in college? Um, actually, growing up, uh, I don't know how many people remember back in the heydays of the 70s, uh, soda came out in uh, one liter bottles. And uh, my dad used to actually drink uh, two of those a night. And uh, just to give you an idea, I'm six foot, my dad's five, eight and a half. So he was a little obese at the time and uh, quit drinking soda and started running. And I thought, hey, if dad can do that, I can do that. So at uh, five years old, I actually stopped drinking soda. And to this day, I'm 48 now. It's been 43 years since I've had a soda. Uh, but I actually grew up playing a lot of sports. I uh, played uh, soccer for uh, about 13 seasons. Got, uh, unfortunately, sick my last season. Ended up in the hospital with pneumonia and kind of got a little nervous. So they said no more of that and got into bowling. I know what a weird sport that is. Uh, did that for a little bit and got into weight training for a while. But uh, I've always been pretty active. I try to be active. I'm, I'm an asthmatic to begin with. So I find that being active, especially with an underlying lung disease, definitely uh, is really important for someone like myself. And I know my, my joke is always that uh, I was going to be a marine biology major in college or an athletic training training major. And then I took a marine biology class and hated it. When you went to college, was there an easy decision to, to major? What did you major in? And was it an easy decision or was it something you kind of fell in and said, hey, this might be something I can do? I actually started out as a biology major because I was thinking of going to medical school. And uh, after graduation, my associate's degree, I started my bachelor's program. And one day I sat before class and said, wait a second, are doctors really going to be making the same money that they're making now? And I'm like, probably not. I'm going to be a quarter million dollars in debt. Am I ever going to get out from under it? And I quit school, actually, uh, for about two years. Worked in the real world. Uh, I worked in retail. Uh, hated it. And got a great opportunity to go back to school and found exercise physiology, which allowed me to do the things I wanted to do in medical school, but not be $250,000 in debt. So uh, I got an opportunity and started back up in the spring, uh, fall of 96 at FAU, uh, find another university down in good old uh, Boca Raton, Florida, and uh, finished up my bachelor's degree and worked in the research lab for the summer and got a free uh, ride on my graduate program. And, and then got it, moved out to Nebraska for a doctorate, actually. And it's always easier to justify or maybe not justify, but say, you know, I think I want to continue my education if you don't have to worry about going more into debt. Very much so. Yeah, it's uh, very important. And I always try to tell my students that uh, if you pay for it, you better start appreciating it. Because what you don't want to do is take the same class three times and have to pay for it three times. 
So put in what you get, put, put in everything you get to do for it and uh, you'll be a better student and a better person for it. And I know there's two groups of people probably are listening to this. They heard you talk about uh, going to school in Florida and they think, how the heck could he actually leave there? And then there's other people like me who didn't grow up in Florida, lived in Florida for a while and knew literally as soon as the moving truck pulled it, pulled into the house that I purchased that this is not a lifetime where I want to be here because I don't like hot and humid weather. And actually, since moving in the Pittsburgh area, 50% of the people when they hear where I used to live uh, 15 plus years ago in Florida say, how could you ever leave? And the other 50% are like, oh, I can see why you got out. When you finish with the master's program, I know there's a number of doctoral programs in the state of Florida. Was it a conscious choice of saying, I want to get out of Florida? Was it a conscious choice of beginning to say, this is the sort of doctoral program I want, which is why you went farther west? Or was there another reason? Uh, the main reason was uh, my uh, neighbor uh, in the office happened to be uh, Dr. Lee Brown. And uh, one day he came to me and said, hey, I got a friend that's uh, looking for some doctoral students. You interested in moving to Nebraska? Uh, you get a free ride. And uh it's a good program. And I ended up uh, heading out to uh, Nebraska to study with uh, Terry Housh for about three years. Uh, the program went some, underwent some changes. I actually uh, quit uh, the program uh, about three classes shy with my dissertation and uh, started work back in the real world again. And uh, it took me about another eight years, actually almost 10 years. And I went back to school and finished up my doctorate uh, in 2014. And I know you mentioned a few minutes ago, the, uh, Finding exercise science gave you the opportunity to do the things that a physician would do or some of the things that a physician would do without that tremendous debt load. Very often, it, uh, I, mean, I know the comment is, and I think you can probably appreciate this, very often the people who finish the doctorate aren't necessarily the smartest people. No offense to any of my friends who have doctorates, including you, but it's the people who just put their head, heads down and persevere, whether it's the first time they go or whether they leave and then subsequently come back. What was the decision after working that you said, you know, I want to go back and finish that doctorate versus that's a separate phase of my life? I always wanted to teach. And uh, while I was working in the field, uh, whether we were in different states uh, with different jobs, I actually got opportunities to adjunct and uh, realized I really enjoyed it. And I had a great opportunity to do so to uh, at my last job, I was working with uh doing some military research up in Washington state uh, and with the uh, U S army. And I kind of was realizing this isn't really where I wanted to be. And a friend of mine told me about the school I went to was AT still. Uh, it was an online doctoral program and it had me, gave me a great opportunity, not only to study online, but still work full time. And the funny part was I actually took a full-time job with AT still for three years where I actually finished up my doctorate. So I was actually working at the medical school. Uh, in Arizona, so needless to say, another bright, sunny state and hot. Uh, but it was it was a great opportunity to meet a lot of people within the field and work with a lot of up and coming doctors and uh, get a better education. Also, I thought too. Any thoughts now that you have a doctorate and are embedded in the teaching that you know maybe I shouldn't have done this. I should have stayed in the more practical aspect, whether it was uh, research or personal training or fitness. No, I actually, um, I never, I got into personal training a little bit. Um, I guess for me, a lot of the clients I worked with wanted more of a uh, psychologist and I didn't really enjoy that aspect of it. Uh, but I really enjoyed, I like people. 
I'm a, I try to meet people, work with people. I enjoyed, especially the disease orientation. So a lot of my interest was with cardiovascular disease, pulmonary disease, uh, metabolic disease in that sense. And just having that opportunity to work with people is great. But one thing I really enjoy with the students is actually helping them with the next generation, um, teaching them and, and bringing forth what I knew and all the opportunities I had to demonstrate to them that there's more than one thing that they can do in the field and enjoy it. And I think that's something that sometimes when you teach in the field, that that is undersold as far as, you know, uh, many students, at least from that I've talked to, it's like, well, you know, I'm going to major in this and there's only one or two avenues that I can go. And I know when I went back to school, I'm a little bit older than you or not. When I went back to school, when I started school, uh, as I said, I was either going to be a marine biology major or an athletic training student. And I remember uh, I became exposed to athletic training because of an injury in high school. And the gentleman who is an athletic trainer and a physical therapist that I went to at the sports medicine clinic said, don't become an athletic trainer, become a physical therapist. And I think at that time, I didn't really know what an athletic trainer was. I didn't know what a physical therapist was. And I think given your vast, uh, and I don't say this lightly, uh, variety of job experiences, many people don't realize all of the things that they can do. And I think one of the things you described is being in the research field. And I'm, I'm curious when you were doing research, was that post-doctorate or is this, uh, you worked as a research person while you only had a master's? I was actually working as with just a master's degree. So my first real research position uh, was with the uh, U.S. Veterans Affairs Administration. Uh, so I was actually based in uh, Richmond, Virginia, working at uh, sp a spinal cord injury research lab. And when I actually got hired, I was the first person hired for the lab. So my job was actually to take the monies that were allocated and buy pretty much all the equipment. So it was having a nice blank check of $100,000 to spend on all the equipment that you can that you could think of. And uh, working in spinal cord injury was much different than the traditional ambulatory idea. I walked in thinking person with a spinal cord injury uh, won't be able to walk. So it was very enhancing to learn that actually there are different degrees of spinal cord injuries and people can actually walk. So um, we got to work with a lot of um, active duty soldiers that were injured uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, due to, unfortunately, IED explosions. I uh, had one who happened to be a lieutenant colonel that uh, suffered a parachute injury. His chute didn't open, uh, or I should say it opened up but a little close to the ground, and, and thankfully the trees slowed him down, but he had a spinal cord injury. Uh, I worked with some other soldiers that were actually active duty that were had uh, traumatic brain injuries. So we were actually the closest uh, facility to uh, Washington, D.C. that we would actually get a lot of dignitaries come through. So it was, it was really nice to actually meet a lot of the active duty soldiers and work with them. Uh, after that, I actually took a job with the Henry Jackson Foundation, which is a uh, military grant foundation that procure, procures uh, research grants for different individuals that want to work with active duty soldiers. So I actually got to work with uh, 1,500 active duty soldiers in uh, Washington state. We were actually based at Madigan. And uh, the interesting thing was we were actually working with uh, Pat Tillman's uh, Ranger Battalion. So it was really neat to actually have that opportunity to work with these guys. And uh, it was definitely a lot of fun. But like I said, it was after a while, I kind of said, there's got to be more to this. And uh, that's kind of why I kind of got out of research. 
And you ever regret the path you took saying out of research, more into academics where there's some research, but also the teaching aspect? No, uh, actually, I think the academics is a lot uh, more secure uh, currently. Uh, one thing you have to worry about research is that you have to find money for it. And uh, if you're not a top name in the field, you might not get the big research grants. And that may limit how much you can actually do. And working at an at a academic university, the position I am is basically more of a teaching position, gives me the opportunity to teach students as well as perform research, but I'm not required to produce a research uh, line as much as a tenured line faculty does. And I know depending on the, on the university, there can be a pretty intensive uh, research component that's just assumed or required. I know a colleague of mine once applied for a, a job at a university, which I won't name because I don't think they're atypical, but he was told that within a year and a half, it was expected that he would be bringing in one and a half to two and a half times his salary. And that's a, that's a big uh, responsibility. And it's what the reason that he didn't take the job, even though it was offered is like, you know, I don't want to be responsible for people where if I don't get a specific grant through no fault of my own, maybe the funding dries up. There are other people who are out of a job because they were relying on me to fund them. It is, it is very scary. And that was one of the reasons why I left the VA because the grant actually ended and there was no added money at that present time. So you get a little worried that that does happen. And I, I feel much more secure knowing that my job is more teaching and uh, research is a secondary part to it. And I know I'm here in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, and there are quite a few people who have been born and raised in the Pittsburgh area. Maybe they left for a few years and then they came back. And whenever they meet me, it's not atypical for them to hear us like, well, why did you come to Pittsburgh? And I know I was always taught by my dad. It's like, look, you know, one of the important things is to have a job. And you may have to move to have a job. And I think you mentioned you were in 11 eight. different, eight, eight different eight. states. And before yeah. I ended up here, I know I counted in at one point, since I had graduated from high school, I had lived in 13 different places. So literally, including growing up here where I am now, this is the longest, this is my 17th year here. This is the longest I've lived in one place in my life. How was it... Uh, with the different jobs and the things like that, how difficult was it to literally move across the country or was your attitude kind of similar to what mine was? I'm, I'm pretty easy with that. Uh, my wife uh, is not, she's uh, she's not a very adapt adaptable person. It, it takes her a little bit to adapt to a new spot, but over the years we ended up moving from my career and my job. So it was a little bit easier in that sense. Um, but many of the states that we moved to, we didn't have family or friends. So that became a little bit more difficult. And we looked into the community and tried to do different things. But I've come to the realization that my best friend is my wife. And uh, we have a lot of fun together. And that's the most important. And especially being under lockdown, uh, I've certainly come to uh, understand my wife a lot better and uh, have a lot more fun now with her, I think, than we ever had in the past. And I know... With COVID going on, we are, I think, here in the Pittsburgh area, I, th I think I first became aware of it or started taking it seriously the 12th or 13th of March of 20 or 20 when I went to see a physician and actually talked to him about it just as a, a side conversation. Um, as you know, my main job is I teach online and I teach from home and I've done that for umpteen years since, since I've been in this area. But I know for many people in academia and, and other professions, 
their life was completely disrupted. Their jobs were completely disrupted. You were mentioning one of the things you like about academics is the fact that there's a little bit more security. I'm always curious when I talk to people during uh, COVID, when was the first time you realized this was going to significantly change the way you did things professionally? And anything looking back, you wish you'd done differently or you'd recognized and kind of adapted sooner professionally? I think I found out probably like spring break. Uh, we were we were still here in Chicago, starting to go back and forth, and uh, the the idea was we were we weren't sure what the school was going to do. They were talking about shutting down, and uh, actually they shut us down probably the week of spring break, and then gave us an extra week to prepare for everything going moving online. So we went from uh, one week the prior week meeting in class to the following week meeting online. And, and it certainly changed the environment. Um, I had courses that had students greater than 100, uh, two courses that actually had uh, one course had 125 students in it. The other course had 200 students in it. And I tried to make them go synchronously and it just didn't work very well. So following it up in the spring, uh, sorry, in the fall, we actually moved into asynchronous classes. And I think that that worked out but probably being a better um, user of Blackboard or the learning management systems, as well as uh, understanding how to videotape and record and come up with better ideas of class projects, uh, that's probably that was probably the hardest thing. I probably think it still is, um, especially even now that I'm teaching still online. It's uh, I think I'm getting better, but probably by the time I get decent, we're going to be back in the classroom. In, in no way would I say I'm decent. I think it's always a learning process. And each year as you, you learn more things and realize, wow, why didn't I know that? I know when I first started teaching online, that uh, people that I would meet at conferences, and you may have even said this too, it's like, how does this work? And I've seen a transition over 10 years or so where people are doing it somewhat, but there still is a, a, a big uh, a switch. I know last March or so, I had five or six of my colleagues across the country at different times call me and say, hey, what do I do? Or what are your two or three best suggestions? What was your background with online education or teaching online before all this happened? Did you have any background or was this, holy crap, I'm uh, jumping into it? Well, teaching wise, none. Uh, maybe just setting up a, bla uh, a Blackboard page just for the students to download information. But uh, my doctorate, like I said, was actually 100% online. So I had experience that way. Other than that, uh, grad school, I had two online uh, statistics courses that, in my opinion, uh, didn't go well, but it was basically because our, our teacher liked to take time off from teaching. So we'd put in all our documentation, and it'd be like six weeks later that we'd actually hear back from him. So uh, that was probably the first experience. But overall, it's, I think our experience is getting a little better. Uh, the school was really good with giving us a lot of videos, trainings. Uh, helping out in that sense, but I, I, it's still an ever ready, you know, ever moving idea of teaching online that I don't think will ever be 100% perfect. But you know, if we can at least maybe not have the hiccup of not having to worry about when to open a a, a module in that sense and know the exact date works right, I think that's going to be the most important thing for me to learn. I know some of the people I've talked to, just both in offices who who work. Uh, 
quote unquote real jobs and people in academia, they said, you know, my life has changed forever. I mean, I know some offices, they're not going back. They're going to be virtual or people are going to work from home forever. I know some people I've talked to in academia have said, you know, some things are going to change forever with this. Even when we're back in the classroom, I can see that there are some things that we shouldn't be or don't have to be in the classroom. I was talking to somebody who said, you know, one of the things they they want to do is, and their department is looking at doing, is having one day on campus where they do all labs, for example. So there's a lab day for the department for all of the labs. I'm curious, as you are coming up on within a month or so, a year of having done this, once this ends and we get back to what theoretically is normal, but it'll be different where you actually go into the classroom, do you see your classes to some extent, or has there been talk in your department or your college that some things are still going to stay online just because they found it works better than the face-to-face? Yeah, we, I don't think we've actually really kind of, we started maybe talking about it a little bit, um, but I don't think it's been, anything's been set in stone. I think what I might do is use some material online um, and some still in the classroom. So do a little bit of a hybridized approach, especially maybe with the grad students uh, rather than my undergrad students. Um, but I think it's a great opportunity to utilize both platforms because I think students, no matter what, some need that tactile sense. They need the classroom, need the need the desk. They need to hear it rather than watching it on a video or reading it in a book. Um, I mean, one thing I've certainly been doing a heck of a lot is, is reading. Um, I set a goal every day, 10 minutes on my iPad. And literally since March, I've read uh, up until December 31st, I've read 30 books on my iPad, actually 24 and then uh, five or six in my hand uh, that I can actually physically touch. And honestly, it's, it, I think it's a better idea. It's helped me become, I think, a little bit better at what I do and uh, understanding a little bit more about the student, I think a little bit more too. You miss now with almost a year being in the classroom versus basically logging on and seeing students if it, if it happens to be synchronous, although now it's asynchronous, seeing students maybe as an emoji or, or a, a symbol on the computer screen? Uh, many times I see a blank screen with their name on it um, because it's, it's eight o'clock in the morning. I think many of them just woke up, so they don't want to show their bedhead. Um, but I do. I do miss, I, I miss seeing the students in the classroom. I think I think a lot of them miss that idea too. And I think it, I think it helps us all to just have that sense that we're near somebody again, um, rather than maybe the person that's in your house, because I'm sure after a while they drive you nuts or you drive them nuts and you can only hide so many places in in an, in a, uh, an apartment or a house before they find you. And I know it's, it's very easy with, especially with what's going on to just think that you're, in your own own little microcosm and you know this is this is affecting you and it's only you i know you and i were talking beforehand and i mentioned that i've had the opportunity to build mountain bike trails and you and your wife have essentially been stuck in your house although i'm assuming you leave to grocery shop and to get gas etc how has that gone because i think one of the things people forget is most of us who work in exercise science or movement we like to move and i mean i know when I went to my doctoral studies, my uh, mentor, Dr. Jeff Chandler, told my advisor, which I found out later, look, if Ben's ever a jerk, just tell him to go out for a run or a bike ride, and he's going to be a lot easier to deal with. And as I've gotten older, I found, you know, if I don't get that 40 to 60 minutes most days of the week, I'm a real 
bear to be with. And it's actually worked out well for me because if my dogs don't get 40 to 60 minutes, they're tearing up the house. So today is our easy day. So we're not going to get that. But I'm curious for you, and you said you're stuck in the house. I know you're a cyclist. How has this worked out with you as far as personally and maintaining a positive attitude? I've actually been riding on the trainer. Uh, one of my first big purchases I made when moving uh, here to Chicago was actually buying a Wahoo, uh, Wahoo kicker. Uh, the reason I did was because uh, I, as I told you, I actually got hit by a car a couple of years ago and uh, my wife doesn't really like me riding too much on the street. And also it's about 30 miles to the city. So it's a little bit harder for me to get to the, get to the offices like I used to. So I bought the, I bought the trainer and I actually ride indoors most, uh, most of the time, unless the weather's a little bit nicer. Now it's starting to flurry. So I won't be going out. Um, But I I enjoy, I'm one of those, like you can put me on a, on, on the kicker and I can sit on it for a couple hours with no problem. Um, but I do miss being outdoors. Uh, like I said, I do have an underlying lung disease. So my fear and my, and my wife's fear is that I could get catch COVID. So it's keeping me indoors so that I don't get it. So hopefully Friday, fingers crossed, uh, as long as the weather's good, I'll be heading to the city for my first uh, dose of the vaccination and that will help. Uh, but you know, you never know. And, uh, I know what the idea of shortness of breath, fatigue, uh, having been a asthma sufferer for my entire life, I understand that. So it's, it's don't want to deal with that anymore. I should say. So I'll make sure to take my meds and do everything that I have to do in that sense. And I know one of the things I've, I've said to many people is, you know, it's not so much the, at least for me as an active person, it's not so much the fear of getting COVID it's the fear of having compromised lung function. And it sounds like as somebody who has compromised function as an asthmatic, that's something that you're very cognizant of. Yes. I am moving here or moving to any new place. There's always the acclimation to the new environment. Uh, So I ended up going to a pulmonologist and normally my uh, maximum amount of air that I can blow out in one breath force vital capacity is about five liters. I was in an episode and I was pushing it about three and a half liters. So needless to say, new medication helps. Um, and, uh, hopefully being in a, getting used to the environment helps also, but the, the idea of catching COVID it's more of the fear of the long term. I think that that's really what we're probably going to end up as an exercise physiologist. We're probably going to deal with those individuals that have long-term issues related to lung, heart, uh, metabolic diseases, such like that. That's going to become the limiting factor of why they're not exercising like they used to. And I know I was talking to a, a physician of mine that I see for an eye problem. He mentioned he had it in March and it was literally until June or July till he felt comfortable doing light aerobic exercise. And he was excited because he was able to go skiing and actually ski, even though he said, I'm really out of shape, but he said there was some time there where he wasn't sure that that would be an option. And he was, he was a little concerned because as you know, you know, part of it, part of the enjoyment for many people in life is the opportunity or the ability to move and do what they love to do, whether it's skiing or hopping on the Wahoo kicker. Yeah. It's when we lived in uh, California, we used to head to the mountains and hike. Um, so hopefully once, well, once the weather settles and the uh, whole situation settles, my wife and I will head out to, uh, nearby, maybe Wisconsin and do some hiking out there, or maybe go upstate up, up into, uh, upper Illinois for some of the mountains. I 
think there are mountains. I'm not very good at that stuff. Um, but having fun with that because we're, she's also a very outdoor person and uh, we enjoy getting out there, doing some hiking and doing some trails and such. Not, uh, not a skier. We've been That's talking. A, yes. a scary thing for me. <laughs> well, I have standing offers from people to teach me how to ski. And my go-to answer <clears throat> is I have enough expensive hobbies with cycling and that I really don't want to take on another one. <laughs> We've been talking with Dr. Josh Miller. He is an exercise physiologist. He's had an interesting career path, and I think it's always interesting to hear from people who have a different path than maybe most people have. And I think it's fair to say that his career path, as he shared with us, is somewhat atypical, and it lets you know that there are a variety of career options, and there are interesting career options. Josh, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Thanks, Ben. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live wherever you find podcasts or on our website, www.moving2live.com. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live and check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, F-I-T-L-A-B-P-G-H dot com, which focuses on people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority because movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. Until next time, keep on moving.